Yes, we did. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless Hello, and welcome back to 50 Stars Plus. Once again, I'm Alex covering the U.S. And I'm Nicola covering Switzerland. Today, we have chosen to release our episode a couple of days early because we have breaking news related to today's subject. The breaking news are related to Afghanistan and the never-ending war of America. Although the U.S. has actually decided to withdraw most of its troops and formally ends its role in the war on August 31st, um, the Pentagon now keeps only about 650 troops in Afghanistan to uh, support U.S. diplomatic security. But now we have the breaking news. The Taliban captured three more provincial capitals on Wednesday and two on Thursday. It has been a week-long week -long sweep that has given the Taliban effective control of about two-thirds of the country. So the Pentagon just reacted on Thursday by sending an uh, additional 3,000 troops to Afghanistan to help evacuate some personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Well, Alex, you know, if, if, if we hear this breaking news out of Afghanistan, honestly, this doesn't sound to me like a good timing for Joe Biden to withdraw all troops by the end of August, does it? It's a challenging situation. To have to send 3,000 troops for evacuation, that's a lot. You know, in April, we only had about 3,500 troops left in Afghanistan. So we've just sent in all at once as many as we took out in the last like four months. But, you know, it's hard because when is a good time to pull out of Af Afghanistan? Yeah, well, you're right. But maybe, you know, uh, we are from Switzerland here, some listeners. And honestly, the Afghanistan war, I mean, for many of us, it, it goes back as long as we can think, right? Can you maybe tell us uh, how did it start and why did it start? Yeah. So a lot of people want to say that it starts on 9-11, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, but that's actually not true. Uh, that's not true. Uh, it goes back before 9-11, in fact. Uh, you could say that maybe it started on September 9th of 2001 when Ahmad Shah Massoud, the commander of the Northern Alliance, uh, an anti-Taliban faction, uh, was assassinated by Al-Qaeda. You could say that that was the start of it, but I would argue it starts even before that. Uh, the region has been really, really unstable ever since the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan uh, on Christmas Eve in 1979. And the reason it was unstable is because while Afghanistan was being invaded by the Red Army, we attempted to wage a proxy war against the Soviet Union, we, the United States. Uh, in 1983, President Ronald Reagan met with uh, Mujahideen freedom fighters. He invited them to the White House. Their whole thing was they were trying to fight the Soviet Union. And we sold them weapons. We gave them a whole bunch of weapons in order to fight the Soviet occupation. But the issue was those weapons were left behind even after the Soviet Union left Afghanistan 10 years later. So at this point, you know, the Taliban was starting to come to power um, in... Southern Kandahar, I want to say, is where they where they emerged. Um, you know, it's at the time in around the 1990s when much of Kabul was destroyed. Nearly 50,000 people are killed. And the Taliban emerges and uses a lot of the weapons that we sold them under the Reagan admin. And since then, they've been able to wage a lot of destabilizing war in the region. 
They've been able to wage attacks on U.S. embassies. And so it was only a matter of time before we were going to invade. And the 9-11 attack on our soil was the last straw for, for the United States. Well, Alex, two basic questions. You know, um, if you read the, the Swiss newspapers, you could get the picture that the Taliban are the evil people and the Americans are um, the, the heroes in Afghanistan. Can you maybe tell us what, what are the Taliban actually and um, what role does the, did the Americans play in the beginning? You know, we're talking about the beginning of the war now, the invasion of Americans. Why did they invade uh, Afghanistan? It's so far away. So people might think, um, what's the deal for Americans to go there? Except, obviously, um, to retaliate the 9-11 attacks. Well, we always wanted a bit stronger of a presence in the region. It's why we give so much deference to Israel uh, in our foreign policy, is because the Middle East is a faraway region with a very outsized amount of power in the economy due to its role with oil. But, uh, you know, uh, me, I would have opposed going to war 20 years ago if I had been an adult back then. And a lot of people did. You know, Bernie Sanders was in opposition to it. A lot of progressive people were opposed to going to war. But we wanted to look strong. That was the whole thing, is we wanted to look strong, we wanted revenge, we wanted to get some kind of retribution for 9-11. It was a very emotional time where a lot of Americans, against their better judgment, were feeling particularly irrational. For example, there are a lot of scholars uh, who embraced fear after 9-11. There's a brilliant guy named Fearon who, he pr produced a paper a few months after 9-11, he warned American policymakers, his opinion, that in the near future, there would be mobile nuclear devices that could be set off by the cell phones of private citizens. That was what 9-11 made him think. He thought, oh no, maybe we're going to have a world of nukes in a few years. And he was wrong. He was catastrophizing what happened. But that fear infected a lot of even really smart people who might normally have known better. And so that's why we invaded in the first place. Okay, Alex, so hold on a second. You, you said in the 90s, the Americans funded, uh, gave weapons to, to the Taliban. So it's not that far-fetched when uh, somebody might say that the Americans created this problem, which uh, some people would describe as a terrorist problem when it comes to 9-11 attacks. They created it uh, themselves. Is that right? I agree with that. We did create our own problem You know, we constantly snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, when we first invaded Afghanistan uh, 20 years ago with Operation Enduring Freedom uh, in October of 2001, it was initially a pretty good success. It was fast. The damage and casualties were very low. But then we decided to stick around and also invade Iraq. And then we decided to try to state build. And we found that That's very difficult. It's very, very difficult to stay long-term in these places. Okay, Alex, uh, you didn't answer my question, and I want to ask it again, because I believe, um, you know, we, we, have to, we have to clarify this. So Taliban are the evil, Americans are the heroes in, in the Afghanistan war. What do you say about this? I definitely think that Our heroes are certainly our soldiers and veterans risking their lives for national security. 
but I'm not going to go out there and say that uh, it's just a battle of good versus evil, because it's not. The Taliban is certainly killing innocents, and that's absolutely evil, but they exist and are this powerful because of us. We're the ones who created this problem in the first place by destabilizing this region, not just over the last 20 years with our invasion, but over the last 40 by waging proxy wars against the Soviet Union. And that's why we need to get out. You know, I agree with what Biden was saying. He's saying the question is how much of a threat to the United States of America and to our allies is the result of what happens here. And for those who want us to stay, how many more lives do we have to give up? How many more American daughters and sons are we risking? And how long should we stay? Nobody's answering those basic questions. Okay, Alex, uh, one more thing about this. You know, you said um, Taliban's are uh, in certain ways evil because they're killing um, definitely innocent people, which is proven. So somebody in Switzerland might say, I mean, it's, it's a common thing to say anti-Americanism in, in Switzerland. You know, the Americans kill innocent people too. Civilian people die when they invade Afghanistan. So explain in your view, how is this different when Americans invade a country like Afghanistan and killing civilians um, because of the war. How is this different than the Taliban killing innocent people in Afghanistan? Please tell us. It's not. Our policymakers would certainly say it is because our objectives are different. But actually, no, they're not. You know, the US, we would say, okay, some of these casualties are necessary because we're doing it for freedom, whatever that means. Uh, but the Taliban would probably say the same thing. A lot of them would probably say they're fighting to resist Western imperialism. And actually, that's kind of how Al-Qaeda got so powerful, uh, was when Osama bin Laden was alive, that was his greatest argument. He wrote in local newspapers. He released a lot of you know writing that was very popular back then with people in that country, in his country and in that region. He was saying that the West is engaging in a war on Islam and on the Middle East. And, you know, after all that we've done there, installing dictators forcefully, selling weapons, trying to manipulate their elections and their politics, killing some of their innocent civilians, using bombing runs. You know, our first campaign on them, the first few months in Afghanistan, were just bombing, not even soldiers. And then, you know, for example, under Barack Obama or Donald Trump, we increased our bombing even more. So I don't think it's different. I very much think we need to be holding ourselves to a higher standard than we are right now. Well, Alex, uh, very clear words of you. I'm, I'm a bit surprised, you know, but do I sense a little bit uh, hypocrisy of, of the West? Uh, are you saying that the West is, is hypocritical when, when they, you know, when they say it's, it's for freedom, but it's, it's, it's just in the Western view that, that, that the Taliban have, have their views? Do you sense a hip hypocrisy there? I do. I, okay, I'm not going to say that the Taliban's idea of freedom is correct, because I don't think it is. Uh, frankly, I think they're a pretty twisted, oppressive group of folks. But I'm also not going to say that we're innocent or that we're the heroes of this world. We, the United States, have spent 226 out of 243 years of our existence as a republic at war. And that's problematic. How many American lives is that? See, I think of myself as a patriot. And to me, patriotism means 
supporting the American people. And that means not wantonly killing our sons and daughters in some faraway desert. It means doing right by our soldiers and only deploying them when absolutely necessary. And it means that if we're going to deploy them, they deserve to be thanked. They deserve the proper pay, proper benefits, proper health care especially. We need to make sure that we're caring for our people and we're falling short on that front. Uh, we're being hypocrites all over the world, trying to act as if we're the, the ruler of the world. And it's very problematic. Okay, so you have been now in Afghanistan for 20 years, Alex, and you have helped stabilize um, the country. You have helped set up with other NATO countries um, a government that's democratic. Um, and now you're uh, pulling your troops um, uh, back to America. Uh, and we see how this goes. You know, the Taliban immediately gained um, gained some land and now they have control of uh, two-thirds of the country again. So this really... You know, this really is like a question. What did you do in, in the last 20 years? It, did it help at all? Or was it just all for nothing? It's exactly the reason we shouldn't be staying. You know, people are saying, oh, we need to stay because of the Taliban. But if we do that, when are we ever going to leave? The issue is not whether or not we stay. The issue is that people want to stay for the sake of staying. They want to remain because they don't know how to do it any differently. This is kind of a problem we have in our U.S. military apparatus, is we set out to do a mission, and we just keep throwing money at the mission, more and more and more money and lives, because all we know how to do is try to succeed in the mission, try to succeed in the mission. But we don't ask ourselves, why are we doing the mission? What's the purpose of it? And the issue we've had in Afghanistan, you know, is we've sunk... 765 billion plus dollars into it, but we never really had a long-term strategy, a long-term grand strategy for creating a stable post-conflict Iraq and Afghanistan. We spent all this money, we killed Saddam Hussein in 2003, we killed Osama bin Laden in 2011 with Operation Neptune Spear, and then what? We didn't define what's next. And so we're just reacting. We're just, we're reacting to new developments as they happen, and we're not being proactive in, in our presence there. But let's be real. The Afghanistan war is so politicized. Uh, as you know, Alex, in America, um, sometimes I have the impression from, from Switzerland or when I was there as a correspondent, it's not really about how you make progress anymore in Afghanistan. Uh, the the president's, uh, former President Trump and now President Joe Biden, they're just trying um, you know, to save face and to do something in Afghanistan or to do nothing in Afghanistan and to pull away the troops, uh, what favors them uh, politically in America. So it's not really about, it doesn't seem to me, it's not really about Afghanistan anymore or the interests of America. It seems much more to have become a, a political game. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. I think we are stuck there because of politics. And it's really tough. If you pull out, you look weak. Like, you know, when, when Donald Trump was the president, he did try to pull out. He said he wanted to. And, you know, even though, even Republicans, Republicans were hitting on, they were hitting Trump for that. They were, they were criticizing Trump for wanting to pull out. But you know what? I agreed with Trump back then we needed to pull out. And I agree with Biden now that we need to. Because otherwise, 
what the heck are we doing? Any national security policy person knows that one of the hardest things to do is counterinsurgency, you know, is fighting terrorists and fighting what's called asymmetrical warfare, where one side is really powerful and big, in this case, the United States, and the other side has to fight with guerrilla warfare and use like hit and run tactics. They're smaller and weaker, you know, in this case, Al Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, groups like that. And it's really expensive and costly and difficult to fight those kinds of conflicts. And we found that out the hard way, didn't we? We killed Osama bin Laden. We blasted the hell out of the Taliban and out of Al-Qaeda. And then ISIS showed up. And then they were giving us problems there. And then, you know, um, Iraqi militia forces backed by Iran attacked our embassy in Baghdad. And Trump dropped the mother of all bombs on ISIS hideouts. And even then, more threats kept coming. And now, even after all of that, we pull out for a second and the Taliban is coming back. So it just tells you that we're just going to be in a forever war if we don't pull out now. And at this point, the money is better spent on something else. I've watched the documentary just recently on the German uh, national, uh, national TV station. And they were uh, visiting uh, women who, uh, who are now um, not oppressed anymore by, by the Taliban because the Americans and the NATO countries came and, uh, and they made the, the country much more stable. And in the documentary, these uh, women um, told the, the reporter from Germany that they are scared that the Americans and the NATO countries are leaving. They fear for their lives. They fear for their freedoms. They, they, there was a girl, a woman on the bicycle And she was so happy that she can ride a bicycle in Kabul, you know. And and now she's afraid because the Americans are pulling out, the NATO countries are pulling out. Um, what would you, I mean, I sense that you're in favor of leaving. But, uh, you know, these women, they say in, in the camera, we need Germany, we need America there. What, what, would you tell, what would you tell these women? You just leave them behind? It's such a difficult situation. They absolutely deserve rights to education, to mobility, to the freedom to better their own lives and seek jobs and better their own futures and decide how they want to live. They absolutely deserve that freedom. On the other hand, despite being the wealthiest country in the world, despite having the most powerful military in human history, America still has finite resources. And... We are not the world's police, nor should we be. That's not what we're meant to do. And by continuing to pour so much into this region of the world, we're continuing to destabilize it. We're making it so that those governments will never, you know, never get, get it together by themselves. And if people are saying, oh, but what about the rights of the people in this region? How can you abandon them? How can you be so callous? I feel for them, but... What about the rest of the world? This isn't the only region in the world with human rights violations. There are human rights violations in North Korea. There are human rights violations in Turkey and the Philippines. Should we be invading all those countries? Should we be occupying all of those and telling them how they should be running their, their regimes and their human rights and their governments? I don't think so. That would be expensive. It would cost a lot of lives. Not to mention, we're, we haven't even started talking about the morality of it. And so we're in this position where it's difficult, but again, we are not the world's police. 
All right, Alex, to, to round this topic up, um, what's next? You know, what's next uh, for America and Afghanistan? Is uh, Joe Biden really going to pull all of the troops out there by the end of August, even if the Taliban uh, gains even more land in the country and more control of the country? Um, give us an outlook to round this up. I think political pressure is going to change what options are available to him. I can't predict with certainty whether or not we'll actually pull out. You know, giving these directives takes time. And so quite possibly will, quite probably will have at least most of our troops out by the September 11 deadline. But maybe we'll keep a few more in there bowing to political pressure because of these increased moves by the Taliban. I'm really not sure. Um, one thing that I think we actually want to keep in mind is not just what the Taliban is doing, but we want to keep the uh, the Chinese presence in the Middle East in mind going forward because the U.S. leaving does actually open opportunities for China to increase its influence in that region. And they have been doing that, uh, at least at the economic level, leveraging the debt some of those countries owe to the Chinese government in order to get concessions from them, such as getting uh, new naval ports or getting land that they can use to build railroads connecting certain countries. Like in Pakistan, actually, they've already done that. They're connecting uh, Pakistan to mainland China. So that's, that's, really, that's really something that we're going to want to consider, not just from a military perspective, but economically as well. Okay, thanks, Alex, um, for your insights and um, your views on the war in Afghanistan. Um, we're going to be just back in, in just a moment. And we're back with game time. Our game we're playing, Alex and me, we're asking each other questions about uh, America and Switzerland, vice versa. It's uh, of the three episodes, it's two to two, uh, so even. And uh, Alex, uh, I asked you a hard question last time. You can decide now. You're coming to Switzerland. Um, actually, this Monday, when this podcast uh, Uh, it would be normally uh, released. It's going to, going to be released a bit earlier because of the breaking news in Afghanistan. Um, you're coming to Switzerland. You can decide. Do you want an easy question or do you want a medium question about Switzerland? Um, doesn't matter. Surprise me. But uh, can you ask first? Yes, I will go ahead. I'm going to ask you. All right. I'm going to give you the medium question. <laughs> uh, it's doable. Three things. First, name the capital city of Switzerland. Uh, shoot. Um, it's, it's not what I normally think. Um, I normally think it's Geneva, but it's, no, 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 it's, it's Bern with a B. Correct. That's one third of the question. Then name me a national dish of Switzerland. Fondue. Two thirds of the question. And now the punchline, three of the four national languages. Only three of the four, because the fourth one uh, is impossible. For you, uh, for everybody except Swiss people. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's, uh, I can at least right off the bat name uh, German and French. So that's two. Um, Italian? Bingo. Perfect, Alex. Congratulations. You're ready to come to Switzerland. The fourth one. The, the, yeah, the, 
the fourth one for your information it would be romance and it's spoken in uh, in some villages in the mountain by only a couple of thousand people um so yes and the italian part is the third largest part the french part is the second largest part and the german part is the is the biggest part congrats thank you thank you uh okay i have a very difficult question for you this week like you it's a three-part question nicola name three major american inventions that were important to the industrial revolution <laughs> um oh my god <sighs> bro i can't think of one out of the bat um important to the industrial revolution well, i would have to go back in my mind um do you have me a, can you give me a hint a hint the agriculture industry so farming changed forever because of one of these and another really changed transportation in the u.s well railroads um by uh i forgot his name uh he had a famous name but i would say railroads that's one the transcontinental railroad which 1900 miles of railroad connecting the u.s yeah the funny thing is american american train system is still uh, terrible but that's that's another topic it sucks today but back then in the 19th century it was the envy of the world all right and agriculture oh my god alex hey uh i think uh i have to take uh to take a rain check and uh, lose this point i'm sorry oh does that make it uh what is that three to two that's three to two tell me what would have been the answers there were actually a lot of possible answers there are a lot of inventions uh the three that came to my mind were the cotton gin which made it easier to separate cotton so they could hire less slaves and it just meant there was more cotton to ship to American cities. Uh, it's part of why slavery uh, was on its way out, actually, economically, is you didn't really want to buy slaves when you could buy a cotton gin. Um, and then another one is the steam engine, the engine which allowed boats to travel on canals. Oh, the the first one I didn't know, but the the last one I should have known. Yeah, because this was a this was actually a huge part. Also, I just saw this in a documentary about America again. Uh, I watched on Netflix. Okay, ah, uh, my bad. Um, all right. This was a very difficult one, of course. All right. Next time I do better. Next time I'm gonna hit you with a really hard one. When you're in Switzerland, actually, we're gonna do the next episode when you're in Switzerland. So come prepared. All right. We go. We're just gonna be back uh, in a moment. And we're back with the second segment. And here we're talking a little bit about uh, broader, about the American war culture, if I'm allowed to say this, and about the, the Swiss neutrality. Uh, Alex, when you think about war and Switzerland, what comes into your mind, if anything? Nothing. Uh, have you guys ever even been to war? 
Um, I mean, we fight it uh, in our country, but that's uh, a long way back, you know, the Habsburgers. Um, but Switzerland as an official country has uh, never been to war. Uh, actually, it is in uh, the federal charter from 1815 and now in the constitution um, that uh, our authorities have to, um, Switzerland has to remain neutral, you know, so it, it, is, it, it is in the constitution. And um, Switzerland is neutral since it's, uh, it became a, a modern country. I am curious, Nicola, um, is this something that the Swiss people like? And before you answer, the reason I'm asking the question this way is I think about different wars where Switzerland was neutral. World War II, for example, is included in that, No. And so you see a case sometimes where Switzerland is going to be neutral to a very evil country, such as Nazi Germany. And there's absolutely the possibility that happens again in another war later, that Switzerland is neutral, but there's a clear bad guy. Uh, what do you think of that? And what do the Swiss people think of that? Yeah, so, so first of all, uh, definitely the neutrality of Switzerland is a popular thing. Um, I can say that. And, you know, you mentioned the Second World War and the role Switzerland played there. Um, it was new. It remained neutral. But uh, it's no secret that uh, Switzerland uh, was very kind to Adolf Hitler. Obviously, they were scared. They're in, in the middle of Europe next to Nazi Germany back then. And they saw all the countries around uh, them getting invaded. Right. Um, they had an emergency plan. Um, the, the army went back to the mountains um, with a famous tactic um, that became famous afterwards. But uh, what I'm trying to say is um, that definitely looking back um, now, 80 years later, um, it was uh, probably not a very human uh, humane um, strategy of, you know, there were, um, there were occasions when um, the Swiss government didn't allow um, refugees, uh, Jew Jewish refugees to enter the country and they knew exactly what's going to happen to them. Um, and uh, actually a lot of Jews um, uh, gave their money uh, to a Swiss bank, you know, um, during the wartime and uh, some of them never showed up again and the Swiss banks kept the money. Um, very dark side of, of Swiss history and I want to say it's not very well taught in school. I'm not saying that it's a uh, never talked about or never discussed, but, um, you know, definitely the, the neutrality of Switzerland in the Second World War is, in my view, um, pictured uh, a, a bit um, uh, too pink, too bright. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because, you know, uh, Switzerland has a lot of great programs that I admire, and it's known as a very peaceful place. But then there's all these things people don't know about, like... Uh, most Americans, I expect, don't actually know that many Nazis found refuge in Switzerland after the war. Um, and of course, uh, not that many Americans are aware that Switzerland is a very violent country for sports where you, you throw rocks at everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, I told you that, but you can, uh, you can see for yourself when we go to the Zurich Derby. But yeah, just uh, one more point, you know, on the other hand, you have to understand that Switzerland is in the middle of Europe. All other countries getting invaded at the time. So you really have to ask yourself um, the question, what are you going to do for your own population? So, I mean, it's not my expertise to talk about it, but um, you might understand why the Swiss government um, 
was um, not very keen to deny Hitler's wishes and um, was not very keen to allow Jewish refugees um, to live, uh, to come to Switzerland because um, they probably feared what happened to, to Switzerland and to their own people. So, you know, it's a, it's a tricky situation. Obviously, looking back, um, you have to criticize it. Um, but what would you have done better? Yeah, it is a challenging situation. And like, to be fair to Switzerland, the US also rejected Jewish refugees. Uh, we rejected the um, that, that ship, the, um, the St. Louis, I think it was called, uh, that ship of Jewish refugees trying to land in the US in uh, 1939. Well, okay. Well, you know, in, in broader terms, if we look at the, at the war culture in America, correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, Alex, but uh, uh, America was, in the history of America, you guys were more at war than you were not, right? Yeah, I actually mentioned this uh, earlier in today's podcast that in the 243 years that America has existed, uh, we've been at war for 226 of them. Yeah, yeah and warfare is kind of our, you know, our big, big thing. Um, I just finished reading a book a couple years ago called The American Way of War, uh, which I actually recommend to any of our listeners who are interested in learning about American war strategy and military doctrine, because it is very fascinating. And you see that we're definitely a country that's about aggression and about keeping our military strong in anticipation of whatever threat we're paranoid about. Yeah, I mean, on a, on American war culture, you know, I, I observed two things when I was uh, living in America that I found very interesting. On, on the one hand, um, Americans really adore their military personnel. You know, I was in, in my elevator in my in my high rise in San Diego when a, when a guy with uh, with with with, with uh, the army uh, clothing uh, comes into the elevator. People say thank you for for your service, and they're real heroes, right? Uh, and also in sports stadiums, you know, you always cheer on the military guys. You have uh, you always like military people who come home and surprise their family, all of this show, you know. But then on the other hand, um, if you ask the American people, uh, all of them are very tired, tired. Uh, most of them are very tired and uh, not in support of, 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 of warfare anymore. Um, so there is... You adore the, the military personnel, but then on the other hand, you know, you have enough of all the fighting, of all the wars. Yeah, uh, that's a big thing is we have such wartime fatigue uh, in, our, in our culture because we've been at war so many times for so long. And especially when it comes to Afghanistan and Iraq and this whole thing in the Middle East, we have people who are going to war now, becoming soldiers and being shipped there who were born after 9-11, who weren't even alive for 9-11. So this war is older now than some of the soldiers fighting in it. Uh, and to your point about, um, about the way we worship our military, I wish we would apply that in policy and pay them better, give them better benefits. Um, and I wish we would do better with, you know, the VA, for example, uh, for, for their health care. It's, it's a really big problem. We do not take care of them nearly enough, honestly. 
But Alex, you do, you're a clever guy. You do realize what America is doing is uh, military propaganda in their country, right? When we see pictures, I'm going to obviously exa exaggerate now, but when we see pictures from China, from North Korea, where they have these big parades and the people are cheering on the soldiers, I mean, you're doing the same thing almost. This is, and you call on TV uh, in America, you call it propaganda when China and North Korea does it. But you are doing the same thing. Yeah, we do do the same thing. We have our, you know, military parades. We have all these, like, intense military ads. Heck, look at our movies. You know, Captain Marvel. That was just a big advertisement for the Air Force. Uh, the military is a really big institution here. And not just for the fighting, but for research and development of new technology. Researching diseases, even. Even, you know, even fighting diseases. Um, one of the criticisms I have of the Trump administration is that ordinarily uh, U.S. Northern Command actually has a role in fighting against pandemics. And the Trump administration did not give adequate guidance to U.S. Northern Command on how best to administrate their part of fighting the pandemic. So they ended up not doing too much uh, of what they normally should have done. So the U.S. military is this really big institution that's not just soldiers, but research and medicine and healthcare and science and education. And it's just an infrastructure. It touches so many different projects. And we have things like the Army Corps of Engineers. We have a lot of soldiers who travel to other countries to provide medical services. Really crazy just how encompassing it is, how big it's become in America. Yeah, that's really crazy. All right, we're almost running out of time, but uh, we have uh, we're doing one more break and then we come back with a new segment. Uh, and Alex, uh, get ready. You know what's coming. All right, we're going to be back in just a moment. And we're back for the last time today with a new segment called Alex Wyckoff on the hot seat. I'm going to explain this real quick. You know, Alex Wyckoff, he's the politician, the aspiring US president. And uh, I'm the journalist who has covered America for three years and uh, still working as a journalist back home in Switzerland. So, um, you know, politicians, they, they like to ditch hard questions. They like to, you know, give long answers and not really answer them. But we are doing this uh, differently on the hot seat. Alex is uh, going to answer the questions uh, in about 30 seconds. And uh, these are, these are um, you know, questions where, you know, some politicians might, uh, wouldn't answer or would answer in, in, in long versions. So um, we're going to break it down. Alex, are you ready? The first one is, is related, you know, to uh, Afghanistan. Alex, uh, I want you to picture yourself sitting in the Oval Office uh, of the White House and then answer me this. Uh, you know, about all we've talked about today, um, you're the US president now. Would you pull out all the troops of Afghanistan if um, the Taliban um, regain uh, full control of the country? I would first want to evaluate what that means for our allies and for uh, us. 
So I would ask for advice from the generals, the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of the Navy, and, you know, everyone who's involved with national security. I would also get recommendations from the National Security Committee in Congress. But my initial instinct morally is still, yeah, we can't afford to be policing that region forever. And so my instinct is to still pull out, but I think it's important first to get expert opinions from advising military experts. Alex, second question. Coronavirus-related hospitalizations are on the rise right now in the U.S. In Mississippi, an official has uh, just said one more week of this and then they run out of hospital beds. So would you mandate now face coverings in schools, for example, in Mississippi, Alex? Yes. Yes, I would. It would be very unpopular, uh, unfortunately, because it's overly politicized. But the science has shown masks help slow the spread. And when we had those kinds of measures, we did see the spread slow. California uh, has been doing a great job of that. We've had mask mandates and we've been pretty aggressive on the masks and the vaccinations. And guess what? We're the best in the US on this. We are the best on hospitalizations. We have the lowest number of deaths and we're number one in vaccinations. Are you not taking away the freedom of uh, these little kids in school by uh, mandating them to wear a face covering, Alex? My answer to that is, what is freedom? The freedom to not wear a piece of cloth on your face? Or how about the freedom to live? Literally, we talk about the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. If life is one of those rights, then absolutely, I'm going to be valuing that. Uh, because when you're saying, oh, it's people's choice not to mask, well... What you're really saying is it's their choice to endanger other people. And we have all sorts of other rules to where if you applied the same logic, it wouldn't make sense. Like what? It's my choice um, not to like drive drunk, for example. There are rules saying you don't drive drunk because you're a danger to people and you kill people when you do that. So what? Am I going to say it's my liberty? It's my freedom? It should be my right to drive drunk? No, that's ridiculous because... I'm endangering other people at that point and myself. Alex, third and last question. Team USA was, after all, the most successful country um, at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Um, who would you, as expected. <laughs> who would you uh, pick as president? Uh, which athlete to visit you in the White House? If you can only pick one. Oh, e easy, 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 easy. It's going to be Simone Biles. Um, but this only for political reasons, not because of her success. She only won a, a bronze medal. This is only a political stunt because um, she's very popular um, with your base, with the Democratic base. Am I right? Well, it's actually not for a political stunt. Like, I see why you think that. But you asked me who would I invite. And she's the one that I'm most interested in meeting, personally, because I'm a huge fan. So... Uh, it has nothing to do with politics. It's I'm just selfish. All right. So Alex is in Switzerland on Monday and we're traveling Switzerland together with other Americans uh, for the whole week. Um, and um, we, you're going to hear about that in our next 
episode. Uh, it's going to be a very Swiss-focused episode after today's uh, American-focused episode. So I think we have a good mix. Thanks for listening, as always. Alex, take it away. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow us on all social media. We have TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all of it. Follow us on 50 stars plus. That's five zero S T A R S P L U S. Please and thank you. Cheers, guys.